Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by Ben Alden, General Counsel of Betterment. Ben, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. So Ben, it'd be great to take a step back like we have, you know, with our other guests and first talk a little bit about your journey to Betterment. You know, you've enjoyed a pedigree to academic career at Cornell undergrad and Stanford Law, and you found yourself in a variety of roles before landing at Betterment and ultimately working your way up to general counsel. So talk a little bit more about your journey, the different types of roles you held and what you got out of them, and how this all led to your current role as GC at a fast growth startup. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think there's a couple nuggets there, right? I think one, and, and you know, I've heard this from other folks that we've had conversations with on the podcast as well, but 
it actually, it's increasingly difficult to chart out your kind of perfect plan. And so going in a place where you're actually picking up skills and, and doing interesting and tangible work actually end up broadening your optionality. It's a little bit counterintuitive, right? But it actually ends up broadening your optionality because you have, um, you know, skills and such that you can apply in different settings. And the second piece is I, I completely agree on, on the legal front uh, and the legal kind of skill set that you have in its application in different spaces. That's That's something we've also heard, which is, you know, look, what you do in law school is essentially you read, write, and argue, right? And in the business world, that happens to be three of the most powerful skill sets that you can develop. Um, so, you know, so so you brought your skill set at Betterment, right? And, you know, for, for those folks that haven't heard of Betterment, you know, your team is completely disrupting the wealth management space. Um, and I think, you know, this space has significant innovation potential for, you know, a lot of reasons. But Two, I think, of are are just becoming you know increasingly obvious and only more prescient with time. You know, the first is there's a significant uh, untapped market for wealth management solutions for people under 35, and I think you guys, uh, along with a couple others in the space, and we'll, I think we'll dive into that, are doing a good job of tackling kind of that missing void. And then I think the second piece is just an advancement in technology, right? The proliferation and application of developing technologies like machine learning just offer better product experiences today, right? You can dig into, you know, predictive insight, historical insight, and just develop new types of products that previously couldn't exist. So you guys have raised, you know, over 200 million in venture from household names. And, you know, I think last time I read, have something to the tune of about 7 billion in assets under management. So you've done that in a very quick period of time. So talk a little bit more about, you know, Betterment's value prop and, and why you think it's resonating with people. Yeah, and I think you guys are working on, you know, some interesting kind of tangible and tangential initiatives to that, right? So I, I think I agree that there's no, you know, kind of controversy in, in this space. I think what you guys are starting to do, um, you know, some of the interesting initiatives you're working on, like moving into 401k for business or moving into human advisory, that's where it starts to get really interesting, right? Because I think entry into these spaces is you're falling through on kind of the classical formula of disruptive innovation. You're entering into a part of the market that incumbents are essentially systematically blocked out of due to business model constraints. Um, and then from there, you're using technology and you're just building up a full suite of products 
So customers can't really graduate you, right? They can't move on to other advisors as they start to accumulate more wealth. And I think even in current day, it's a horizontal strategy into competing with incumbents for their existing customers' assets. You know, I, I think at a more competitive fee structure that you guys obviously have because you leverage technology. And then just with scale, having raised as much in venture as you have, having as many assets under management, it's easier for, you know, non kind of early adopters to trust placing their assets in, in a service like yours. So in a, in a sense, your customer acquisition pipelines really simultaneously picking a customer base well earlier than your competitors and increasing, you know, longevity and long-term stickiness amongst those folks. But you're also getting a different portion of the wealth management stack with higher net worth customers. So talk a bit more actually about kind of the move into, you know, 401ks, human advisory, um, and, and what the thought process is there. Absolutely. I'll first start by noting one of the interesting things is that I agree with you that this is a disruptive innovation, kind of classic Clay Christensen style disruptive innovation. Um, but it's not just for kind of underserved millennials. Um, we actually have a large portion of assets for people over 55, and um, the mathematical market loves this as well. And I think that's really because, as I noted before, this is really how people should be investing, period. If you're doing it yourself, you can replicate it yourself. If you have a human advisor, you might be uh, you know, doing it with them. But we really hit that sweet spot where if you believe passive investing is the best way to invest your money, we automate that at a level that makes it so inexpensive for you um, to do it through us that it doesn't make sense to do it really elsewhere. And that, that, that's kind of a critical point there, too. But you are right. In addition to kind of a classic disruptive innovation playbook, we are kind of moving up the stack, especially as we build a, a great brand reputation, kind of enhance our product. We're able to meet people a little bit more where they are today. Uh, and for some people, that's having a, a human advisor. So they really appreciate the, the core model of, I want to keep my cost low, diversify, have someone constantly monitoring my portfolio, and use smart technology to minimize taxes. But every once in a while, I've got more complicated financial questions, and I'd really love to get a certified financial planner on the phone. We will meet you there. Uh, if you would like to start a 401k for your company or rollover, we, we can do that for you, too. And we take the same approach that we use for our investment confidence for that, which is how do we make this easier? How do we kind of simplify the complexity, smooth out the rough edges to help people improve the way they invest and save. And for 401ks, we want to help people improve the way they invest and save and plan sponsors on board and understand the services that we offer. And so with these moves into different kind of spaces, right, like into 401k um, and human advisory, you know, how do you how do you see the overall space and, and landscape shaking out? And, you know, I say that from this perspective. So I think there's certain inherent advantages, you know, startups against incumbents. And, you know, I, I think today, other than you guys, you know, Wealthfront are definitely the leaders in the space. But the incumbents and other startups are, are coming, right? And they're making moves. I mean, just this year, the stories of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, UBS, you know, the other kind of traditional institutional investors um, and banks getting into the space by launching services or, or partnering has dramatically gone up. And at the same time, you know, the startup space really in the last two years is starting to get a lot of entrance. You know, I think in 2016, there was something to the tune of, you know, 70 to 80 VC deals that were done just for wealth management startups. And over $650 million was raised. Now, in fairness, $100 million of that was for your guys' Series E. But still over a half a billion dollars raised and, you know, 80 some companies coming in and flushing into the space. So 
you know, with the rush of entry into the market, both incumbent and startup, how do you see the space shaking out? Do you think folks, um, you know, I haven't dug into those 80 other companies, but do you think folks start to really just attack a particular product like, you know, 401ks or particular things, or, or they try to build kind of a bottom up, you know, entirety of wealth management service? How, how do you see the space, you know, and then affected with, you know, the traditional institutionals? How do you see that all kind of coming together? And I, I, so I hear that point completely, right? And I think up to a degree and stage, the competition is accretive, right? A lot of the difficulty that startups face typically when coming up with a disruptive solution to the market is just educating the market, right? And I think in your guys' case, with the number of dollars that are flowing in and the incumbent's activity that's, that's starting up, uh, a lot of educating the market just becomes subsidized, right? It becomes subsidized by incumbent's marketing budgets and, and other venture dollars, over the long run, though, just like it took Fidelity and Vanguard, you know, 40 plus years to become household names, you know, there are going to be winners in the space, right? And I think the winners in the space, in this space particularly, the outsized return is just going to be massive because, as you mentioned, it's a trillion dollar industry and it's only growing, right? Managing assets is not going anywhere. How you manage those assets is definitely going to be changing, right, with players like Betterment, et cetera. But how do you guys think about winning, right? Is it a technology play? You know, having gotten in this space earlier and with better data, you can just create better machine learning to, you know, ultimately provide folks with better services and better advice. Is it a design play? You know, the ease of your app and UI, you know, along with Wealthfront is just, it's so attractive to, you know, folks that are like at my age, especially because, you know, people want a simple, clean, and I, I don't think, you know, I think as you mentioned, it's not just people that are my age, right? People generally want a simple, clean dashboard that just makes sense of their financial future. So is it, you know, is it a design play? Is it penetrating the full wealth management stack and offering, you know, a breadth of services and products that come with scale so that you say, hey, look, when I go to Betterment, not only can I have kind of the clean, passive investing, robo-advice, but if I do want, you know, a certified financial planner, I can get that there. If I do want to manage my 401k, I can do that there. If I want to do, you know, X, Y, and Z future product, I can all stick in one platform. I don't have to go, you know, to other folks. So 
I imagine it's some sort of combination of tech, design, you know, product availability, product scale. But how do you guys, you know, how do you guys think about, you know, that sort of space and and how to really define yourselves as kind of the winners and dominant players in the space going forward? I'll start with all of the above. <laughs> uh, I'll start with all of the above, which is obviously not the most interesting answer, but it's, but it's true. I think it's, it's on all fronts. It's how do we continually build a brand that's associated with uh, trust and excellence, and how do we continually provide a product and a service that shows people how investing should be done, but also builds and engenders the trust that is the core of all financial planning relationships and uh, financial advisory relationships. And we feel confident that we can do that in a number of ways. Um, in terms of the product, we can continually build out a digital experience that feels more and more human to people, so that instead of kind of coming to your advisor and feeling disempowered, feeling like, you know, you may be a confident person in your life, but when it comes to money, I don't know what's going on, we can empower you to feel good about that. Uh, issues involved in managing people's behavior. So how can we uh, give you real-time advice when you need it, as you need it? Um, how can we make that clearer to people within the market? I think we have a generation of people who have grown up with the financial crisis and um, very vague uh, brand marketing for financial services. Uh, how do you kind of cut through that, uh, which is a fun challenge uh, for us as well. But really staying ahead of the curve and trying to give people what they're asking for, but also trying to show them what you know, they can have, they just do, is going to be the fun challenge for us. So how do you think about, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, so I, I kind of segment strategy into market forces and non-market forces, right? So all the all those pieces that you're saying make complete sense, right? Have better technology, better design, a better brand. So I, because I think trustworthiness is an often underappreciated asset in this space, having breadth and scale. So I, I kind of categorize all of those as market forces. As you go head to head against the incumbents for, you know, essentially pocket share, you know, how do you go up against the non-market forces in the space? And, and what I mean by that is things like, you know, lobbying and, and regulation, data privacy issues. And let's, you know, let's actually, actually, let's focus on the data privacy piece, right? I, I think on the data privacy side, there's a lot of interesting things unfolding. I know that's a space that you've been dedicating some thought to, but to paint the picture there, I think there's fair arguments and interesting arguments on both sides, right? So the incumbents have a fair argument on data privacy, which is saying, hey, look, we want to make sure that we're holding our customer data in a secure manner, right? We're not just flipping it out to any and every third party or every vendor. The flip side of that argument kind of plays out like the Meerkat Twitter situation, right? When Twitter shut off API access, they effectively killed Meerkat. And I think in this space, it feels like if the incumbents make access to data more obscure and they introduce friction, it makes your job significantly harder. And I think they have an interesting line to toe. And there's a little bit of game theory at play there, right? Because they don't want to be the holdout bank that isn't on board with you guys or other robo-advisors. Otherwise, customers are going to be annoyed and they're going to move money. But on the other side of that coin is essentially cooperating with all the other financial institutions in terms of making this a really tough issue for you guys. You know, if all the banks are on the same side and have you know, really restrictive kind of data privacy policies, they essentially entrench their position and customers by lack of choice aren't going anywhere. So talk a little bit more about, you know, this is a space that often, you know, I think, I think your CEO said this and I really, this really resonated with me, which was people often veer away from spaces like this because they're messy and they're complicated and they have a lot of regulation. But in those kinds of 
times when people are turning their heads, there's actually a huge opportunity, right? And I think you guys have taken advantage of that opportunity and there's, you know, there's still a large road to kind of climb there on the regulation side. So talk a little bit more about that challenge, kind of non-market forces and, you know, especially in your role, how you approach navigating the regulatory space and, and think about that from a strategic perspective. that might 
Yeah, that's that what we exist to do. Yep. No, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's interesting because I actually imagine the you know, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. How the conversation with regulators is evolving on you know AI and machine learning, right? So you know, as AI and machine learning continue to improve over the next couple of years, there's going to be more and more influence, right, of AI and you know non-human I'd say activities in the wealth management space. So two-part question, how have you, in your conversations with the regulators and, and kind of being on the ground in this space, how have you seen that sort of conversation evolve? Um, and then the second piece is a little bit more broadly and away from the regulatory space, you know, what are the types of wealth management services where you think AI is just 100% going to replace humans versus services that will augment, you know, human advisory and, and human wealth management. And to provide a little bit of color on that latter point, I think folks typically over-index the whole AI replacing humans piece. Um, you know, robots and, and robo does a lot of things better than humans, especially things that are characterized as a complex math problem. But when it comes to EQ and empathy and counseling, you know, robots are a long ways away from, from replacing humans. So, you know, on that on that latter point, you know, kind of when you dig in, which specific parts of the business are you guys excited about when it comes to AI just completely supplanting humans? And then which pieces are you excited about that AI will probably, you know, 10x or 50x the value of, of human touch? So I think I'll just start by agreeing with you that I think AI is slightly over-indexed right now. I think that there is so much we can be doing that is basic just logic trees for helping people um, get out of the better services before we even get there. Um, and so while I'm sure that will be the future at some point, we really, right now, just need to start with the very basics. And that's, if we can help you get a plan by learning about your life and just the information, that will be sufficient. I think, you know, one other thing to point out is it's not really about, you know, humans versus technology. One will win, one will lose. I think what we've seen is, if you had asked people 20 years ago what will happen now that you have a spreadsheet, Right, what happens with the advent of you know Lotus Notes uh, and the ability to automatically calculate? You know, I think you're you're affiliated with Kinsey. You've done some consulting. You know, all of those spreadsheets had been done by multiple humans on index cards. Yep. And people with the versions of index cards, but for some reason we haven't really seen a decline in uh, you know consulting. The industry is still growing, thriving. It's uh, adding a lot of value, not because humans ways of adding value of the stack. So now the value isn't providing a calculation, the value is providing, you know, a wealth of out research strategic input based on numbers, but not solely relying on numbers. Uh, same with us too. What we will continually do here is automate uh, the things that can be automated so that humans will have to move up the stack of value that they provide. That doesn't mean that humans won't provide value, and I think it'll be an extremely long time before we see uh, placements of humans in this field, far, far from it, I think. Uh, you're going to see more people going to advisors, for this, at least certainly in the short and medium term, because we are raising awareness of the importance of that. Like I mentioned before, I think our greatest competitors a few years ago, I would have told you, were inertia and do-it-yourselfers. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's actually interesting you point out that kind of curve, because this is actually what's going on a lot in self-driving cars, right? So the, the kind of press coverage these days is... Um, you know, self-driving cars are going to replace all human drivers. 
I think in the short term, the actually more interesting insight is it's actually going to increase the demand for human drivers, right? And it's a, in, a, in a similar kind of curve of what you're describing here, which is as more people enter into the market, more people have access to rides, right, in that space. In this space, as more people have access to financial services, in the short term, it's actually going to increase the demand of needing more certified financial planners, right? And I think over the longer term, right, too, to note that, you know, there's, there's these pieces of human touch and human advisory that will be uh, accelerated via more advanced technology, but will be actually be very difficult for technology to outright replace. And that's right. We, we think that's a good thing. We think it's great for the industry. We think it's great for consumers as, kind of, as we outsource retirement savings to the individual. You know, Social Security Administration will tell you not to expect your full benefit. Uh, pensions aren't really a thing. Um, when you combine smart technology with like really great, well-trained humans, you can try and bring back a defined uh, benefit deal in a defined contribution world. So all of that is good. Um, now, if you were to ask me to talk about uh, our interactions with regulators around AI, I think I'd just tell you it's probably a little early for that conversation. There's there's a lot more we can be doing, should be doing. But governance over our software is critical and will always be a big decision. Not talking about our situation, but thinking through machine learning, uh, I think there's going to be some interesting challenges. I think what we've seen with core, what I think of when I think of machine learning and you know, neural net type stuff is you train the machine, but you don't know how the machine thinks, right? Yep. And so ultimately, you may get results, which net over time are really good. But in the individual case, it may not make a lot of sense. Uh, I was reading a study about you know, uh, medical diagnosis machine learning tests, and they were net doing really good work, but they were also making glaring and horrific mistakes. They were sending people with uh, asthma home as part of a pneumonia study, and apparently that's like a number one indicator of do not send people home. Hmm. So there's a lot of interesting things there. What I will note with a, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek is that that actually is how the human brain works today. Right. So interestingly enough, when we talk about human advice, um, there's a lot of benefits to asking uh, the basic pieces of that automated so that it is more transferable and you do know what's happening and what goes into it and that it doesn't depend on what you know a human being ate for lunch or what's happening in their social life or how they feel on a certain day or whether they're over or underworked. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's actually one of the pieces I you know often worry about with products that face you know this kind of heavy technology bent, which is you know naturally they end up facing heavy consumer skepticism and there's a large education piece around it is, you know, one of the pieces I worry about is, you know, what happens when correlation and causation gets gets conflated, right? So to make that a little bit more tangible, you know, you guys have been... Yeah, no, exactly, right? And like, I mean, to make it more tangible, like you, you guys have been riding a bull market for the entirety of your existence, right? And there's inevitably going to be a bear market. And I'll, I'll get to the question kind of in a point uh, in a second, but again, a little bit of color context... I think what's happening, um, you know, in, in this kind of case is the analogy is exactly what's going on with self-driving cars, right? So we all know self-driving cars are inevitable. They're coming. The technology's there. Google's driven, you know, 10 million plus miles. Whenever there's one self-driving car accident, the press is all over it with mass coverage, right? And these stories always have a kind of weird way of invoking some sort of apocalyptic kind of vision of the future. And I think the right way to think of the danger or the impact of a self-driving car crash isn't, it's not to think about it in isolation, right? It's, it's to judge it relative to normal car accidents. So 
one self-driving car crash is terrible, right? It looks terrible. But one self-driving car crash compared to 100 human car crashes in the same time frame completely paints a different narrative. So I think there is a lot to like the point of what you're talking about, right? Which is the narrative can be very different. And there's pieces, I think, that are taken for granted of how the human brain just actively thinks today. So on the kind of more tangible point, do you think in a bear market, you know, which will inevitably come, you start to see this type of effect with robo-advising? Because I can already see the headlines, right? Robo-advisor loses all her hard-earned money, you know, of individuals, right? Or all savings of, of individuals. And that headline would persist even in an environment in which money with human wealth managers, right, not using any sort of advanced technology, not using kind of latest best practices or so, in a case where human wealth managers might lose significantly more or perform even worse over a long ter- longer term time horizon. So I, th- I think your early adopter customers likely wouldn't care, but how do you think about that at scale and kind of the place of robo-advising, you know, generally? Sure. Let me unpack a little bit in there because I think you can hit something really important, and that is, uh, I think it's a, a George W. Bush quote, which is a really wonderful one, which is, too often we judge other, other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Yep. Um, and there's something to be said about that with robo-advice, which is, oh, like, what if the robo does something wrong? And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Then that's what we work really hard to try and prevent. And like a self-driving car, I think we hope we provide net really high-quality, standardized, but also personalized advice over a large client base. Whereas maybe the human asking the question uh, might not have standardized uh, views on things or may, you know, build a portfolio based on how they feel that day. Or they may just use the same software or similar software that kind of we use. They just use it on the back end instead of exposing that to the client side of things. I think there's a lot of room to develop there, but I think that core human intuition underlies most of these areas where you see technology stepping up to do things that human beings had done before. Uh, I'm with you, I think. For Tesla, will be the first to tell you that they have fewer crashes per mile on the road than kind of the average human car, but that's not exactly what we think about. Um, to get to the kind of downturn management, like you mentioned, you're right. We have had a very fortunate uh, bull run. Our hope is that we've also built our product for a bear run. Uh, we have a diversified uh, portfolio, which will hopefully help mitigate the downturn so you see less drawdown. Um, but we also can provide behavioral cues real time when customers need them. So today, if the market tanks uh, 10%, you come to Betterment, we can have a notification waiting there for you saying, hey, are you worried about the market? Like, read this. Like, you've got a long-term goal. You're still on track. Don't worry about it. It's a little harder to do that if you have to call every one of your clients. Um, I like to joke that if you are a human advisor and you've got an average of 130 you know, clients, 150 clients, if you were to have 30-minute phone calls with all of them, it would take you a week to talk to all of them, assuming you work 12-hour days straighter. My math is probably slightly off. But <laughs> so the question is, how can we use technology to help um, if advisors use us or if uh, you know, you're just a normal retail investor, how can we give you that information in real time? Which is, I think is an interesting thing. Um, we also use, have features called Tax Impact Preview, which can show a customer what the actual tax impact would be if they were to pull out of their investment. So normally today, if you sell on your brokerage account, you're like, okay, got it, sold, great. And then months later, probably April 14th, before your taxes are due, you realize that by selling your uh, stock, you're going to have to pay some money. You're going to have to pay out 
actually show you that kind of upfront. And after receiving that notification, a large, almost three quarters of a customer, as you see it, decides not to go through the transaction. Uh, and then we've also seen, uh, although you know this would definitely need to be proven out, that market timing uh, costs customers around one and a half percent. Retail investors, there's the famous adage that retail investors love to, you know, buy high and sell low. Uh, and then the average veteran customer, instead of kind of losing around one point one and a half percent return, loses almost a point, you know, two two percent. Uh, so the behavior on our platform tends to be a little better. I think that's because we are helping educate people into the importance of long-term goal-based investing. In addition to, I'm sure we're without completing correlation and causation, probably getting a lot of people who are bought into passive investing in general. Yeah, I think the behavioral piece actually resonates a lot, right? Because, and I think that's actually, that ends up being one of the strongest points of, of retort um, in the case of a bear market or so, because I was reading a study that was talking about how, you know, in the S&P over the last 20 years or so, if you miss the nine best days of trading, which often folks that more active that use more active money managers, right, try to time the market, et cetera, et cetera, do, you you would have swung your return profile from something like you know plus four percent to negative two percent, right? There would have been a massive compounding swing just by missing you know the best ten or so performing days in the market over a twenty day period. So I think controlling actually for impulse buys. Um, you know, behavioral psychology, behavioral economics that often is to human detriment is actually, you know, one of, one of your guys' strongest, strongest points. And I, I think on that point, as a related point, there's a lot of human activity that's interesting in the world today. And so I have a, I have a slightly more, you know, macro question for you. Um, you know, as, as we finish up Q1 and, and the first hundred days of the new administration, you know, what do you, what's your perspective on, you know, more broadly what we see for venture tech and, and startups in 2017? You know, what are, what are the big stories? And the way I kind of slice this um, is I think there's an optimistic side. I think there's a pessimistic side, right? I think on the optimistic side, we could see a lot of activity in the financing markets, um, partly given about, uh, partly given how much cash companies will likely bring back from overseas, given the conversations on uh, repatriation and the new tax structures, um, and if the enormous amount of cash on public tech companies' balance sheets are deployed, I think we see a lot more R&D. I think we see a lot of M&A. And thus far into the year, I think we've actually seen a pretty healthy and, and good enterprise IPO start, story start to form. Other than the financing side, I think, you know, on the positive side, I think we continue to kind of see these stories on the technology side where, you know, we're moving beyond the maturation of mobile. And I think these underlying tech stacks like machine learning, AI, is really picking up steam. And, and you can kind of tell that by lagging indicators of machine learning is starting to become a household word, kind of like cloud was a few years ago. On the pessimistic side, you know, I see a lot of uncertainty given the turbulence in Washington, right? And in a micro sense, just pairing that down to the business community or to the startup community, I think that means risk aversion for startups, right? I think in an environment in which there's uncontrollable risk, Startups typically become less ambitious and take less big bets because if there is a nuclear winter, right, as we've often seen in the capital markets, you want to harbor you you want to harbor a, an environment in which you're going to survive. At a more macro level, I think it has real impacts on entrepreneurs deciding if they want to start businesses in the U.S. You know what kind of talent comes through to the country. Um, so you know I think there's a lot left to be written for tech and startups during the remainder of the year. 
how do you kind of think, you know, of what's going on in, in the more macroeconomic sense and, you know, whether you think about the, how that affects, you know, Betterman and your business particularly, but how do you kind of see it shaking out over the rest of the year? I think at the outset, one of the best things about being in Betterman and being a uh, passive investor myself is that I don't worry too much about the market, um, period. I think that's one of the more interesting things. I think sometimes I follow macro trends for sport, but I believe, and I think Betterman believes as well, that for whatever these things are, both um, for our clients, but also for Betterman's corporation, the company, um, that we do good work, we keep moving forward, everything's going to be fine. Um, you know, there are obviously uh, interesting regulatory trends we're kind of adapting to that are changing things, but for the most part, the most important thing that we and our kind of customers do in these types of markets is just keep moving forward, and that's it. Right? We've got long-term outlook, and we uh, have it for both the company and for our clients. Uh, and look, we also believe that the secular trends are all moving towards everyone investing this way in general. I think you're just not going to see in 10 years the days where, one, people had no idea what to do with their money, um, which I think if you ask your friends is a common theme, and two, that once they figure out what to do with their money, that they would randomly be uh, you know, buying stocks and bonds. Um, some of my friends in finance uh, are people who remind me of Smokes, who you know, were always aware that they needed to invest their money, but were always the, the most to place the most uh, crazy bets with their retirement funds. You know, they're all in on are probably going to be shrinking a little bit. Um, and that's independent of whatever happens in the market this year. Yep. No, that's a, that's a very fair perspective. So, so Ben, as we round out the conversation here, I'd actually like to switch, you know, gears and, and finish up again with a few thoughts on your personal journey. Um, you know, I think careers are all about people. Um, and I think people, especially kind of my age, you know, your age, people, you know, that are towards the earlier side of their professional careers, actually under index on on the importance of mentorship networks and relationships quite heavily or they misunderstand those concepts um, and kind of think that hey a network is you know going to that one hour networking event right um, which I think as most people that have developed good relationships or good mentorships will tell you those kinds of events are actually the antithesis of the right way to think about a network um, so who over the course of your career, you know, has been the most impressive person that you've interacted with? It could be founder, entrepreneur, judge, uh, law firm partner, other, um, you know, who's, who've been kind of your key mentors and, and what are the set of characteristics about them that impressed you? Sure. I think there's, there's been a few, but I'll, I will just start and say, and I mean this totally seriously, uh, my, my wife, um, she's an entrepreneur and she was doing this, uh, in New York back in 2010, um, before a lot of people were, um, sold her first startup, worked at Run the Runway, and is now back out there um, with a company called Sawyer, uh, doing it again. And I think that watching her do this is just so inspiring. Um, being able to live with an early stage entrepreneur because it is so raw. Uh, someone asked me the other day to describe, like, well, what about it? And I think it's, I think it's that she loves creating things more than she fears failing. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a bravery. It is a very simple thing. It is not worrying uh, about the downside of what you always do, but loving what you do so much more. Um, having a bias to action. Uh, you know, I think sometimes as a, as a lawyer, I can overthink things. Um, and watching her kind of make decisions and learn and keep moving forward uh, is 
inspiring. Uh, I think there's a my judge has been absolutely wonderful. Um, it's no uh, short thing to say that I think she's a, an unbelievably wise person, and I think that that's a great thing to say about a judge. Uh, taught me how to write, taught me how to think. Uh, I really grew up, and also just a lot of the lawyers in this space. There's an abundance of amazing lawyers and startup companies these days. Uh, Sean Stenstrom at Palantir is an unbelievable lawyer, but also just a thinker of how you grow a team and a culture. Um, Joaquin Gamboa at DocDoc is such a sharp, uh, such a sharp lawyer, but also leader and runs people there too. Kathy Leo, who is a guilt, but now Giovanni. Um, all these are unbelievably wonderful people who are always happy to pick up the phone, um, which really makes this feel a lot less lonely. I think in startups you can kind of do your own thing and try and reinvent fire every week. Um, but having a great network and people who are really helpful really helps you grow. And that's been the most, I think, important part. I don't think I'd be where I am without the people, both external, but even the people internal who kind of mentor me here. Uh, you know, the Boris Kentoffs are VP of operations. Uh, you know, Anthony Schraub, our first chief product officer who brought us here. It, it's, it's all about people and your willingness to learn from them and be with them. Yeah. So, no, I, I think that makes complete sense. And so as a final question, you know, if you had to distill kind of the most important lessons, you know, from your career thus far into a few observations, you know, what what would those observations be? Right. And a, a lot of what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, confirming what what I strongly believe is it is a lot about people. Um, but for you, you know, is it you know, is it a mindset you'd advocate advocate that young folks have? Is it more of a tactical focus you'd encourage? You know, if you had to give the elevator pitch, Right. What's the most critical thing, you know, going back, you would focus on in the early days of your career or you'd advise, you know, other folks to focus on? I think there's a lot, but there's two things to jump to mind. The first is uh, what pain are you willing to suffer? I think Mark Manson wrote a great post uh, called the, you know, the most important question of your life. And the gist is this. Everyone wants to be successful. I read cover letters all the time. They're all, I want to work at a you know, fast moving, fast growing fintech company. It seems exciting. I think everyone wants the exciting stuff. Uh, everyone wants to kind of ring that bell at the IPO and be part of growing something great. But that's not what this is really about. This is about are you willing to work hard? Are you passionate? Are you willing to suffer through the really late nights and the confusion and the feeling like you don't have enough people on your team to get the things done that you really want to get done? Are you willing to be the person who will uh, you know, try and build the industry group, who will kind of reach out across the aisle to the business to try and make sure that you're integrated properly? Are you willing to kind of fight the fight and struggle for the struggles, um, celebrate when you can, and kind of just work hard and keep your head down when not? Uh, so that ultimately is what's going to determine your successes, I believe, is what are you willing to put up with? If you want to be successful as an entrepreneur uh, at a startup, you've got to be willing to work hard. And if you're not, then you can find something that's a little bit more aligned with what you want. Because everyone wants to be successful. Um, that's easy. And I think with that in mind, the second piece is just work hard and treat yourself like you're a craftsperson. I think one of the amazing things that lawyers do is build a set of skills to become valuable. And the more you do and the more experience and judgment you build, the better you are at your job as a muscle. Um, but I think a lot of people come out of law school with a, a narrative being taught that law firms are tough, hard, terrible places. 
education, at least being told you're really smart and you've really reached the bell. But what I think people don't tell you is that we are craftspeople, we are engineers, and that it takes experience and time and trial and failure to get good at what you do and to not lose sight of that. And that it should be hard because you're challenging yourself. Um, and that while, you know, I think working at law firms and clerking was a lot of work and difficult, I look back unbelievably fondly because I couldn't do what I do without that training and the people I met. And so I'd say, just to summarize, it's what are you willing to work for and put up with to kind of get to where you want to be? Not just what is your passion, but what are you actually willing to do? And then invest in yourself. Recognize that those long hours are making you better at first um, and that you don't want to maybe do them for the rest of your life, but you are your own boss in this day and age. And if you don't invest in getting good at something, um, others aren't going to invest in you. Awesome, Ben. Well, thanks so much for the insight. This has been you know, a really fun kind of substantive conversation as well as you know, some personal reflections on, on how to think about careers. Thanks again. You know, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, it's, it's been really great and really enjoyable.